Good morning. Today we will be reading from Micah 7, the last three verses of the book, 18 through 20. Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not retain his anger forever, because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. You will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham, as you have sworn to our fathers from the days of old. Let's pray. Lord, uh, we thank you for your mercy and your steadfast love. We thank you that after the the very hard and harsh uh, but true things you said about uh, your people and their dereliction of duty, uh, their rejection of righteousness, their foolishness, and all the terrible things that they have done, Lord, um, your arm reached out to save, to vindicate your name, Lord, and to preserve your remnant. Lord, may we be mindful of that. We, may we see the gospel in it, Lord, uh, your strong arm for your people, Lord, and your glory. In your name we pray these things. Amen. Thank you, Nathan. All right, well, welcome to the last message of six in the book of Micah. I hope it's not the end of the journey for you and Micah, um, as God brings it to mind, and as you continue to read it whenever you do, may the Lord bless you in that. Uh, Today, we're going to begin with a little shorter review, because at the end, I want to walk through the book of Micah, but I do want to remind you, because our subject today picks up on the same thing as last week, what we said last week, and so God tells the Israelites, through the prophet Micah, as well as us, what he wants. And the three things from last week that he wants are for us to remember him, to fear him, and then to wait on him. Micah 7, 7, one of those verses. So this week, we're going to pick that topic up again. There's one more thing in the book of Micah that God wants from his people. And I just want to say that sometimes it's easy for us to miss the beauty of the word because we've read it so many times. Sometimes, even me and those who are much older, like my dear brother Bob here, who've preached it many times, it's easy for us to forget to expect something when we come and therefore not see anything. In 2007, a man set up to play a violin in the D.C. Metro subway. And he started playing, and he played for about 45 minutes. He played six Bach pieces, and he played throughout rush hour. And it was estimated because he played for that long, and rush hour, upwards of several thousand people passed by. And kind of, as you watch the video, you can look it up when I tell you the name of this person. They just go by, and they keep going by. One woman kind of looks over and just goes on her way. The people who stopped are children. One child, about my Moses age, three or four, stops and, and kind of gapes as he's listening. And eventually his mom kind of pushes him along and drags him from behind, and he's looking back, trying to like, look, see what's going on over there, right? You've done that to your kids. You've maybe even experienced that at some point in your life. Several kids throughout that time stopped and watched. But when he ended, there was no applause there was silence. Things back, went back to the way they were in the subway. What no one knew that was passing by that day is that this man 
was named Joshua Bell. He's a very famous violinist. In fact, he played one of the most complicated pieces ever written for a violin. And he played it on a uh, guitar, a violin worth three and a half million dollars. Yeah, amazing, isn't it? People didn't see that because they saw what they expected to see, a beggar playing for a dollar in the subway. I hope we don't miss the beauty of Micah 7 here at the end of our series of Micah. I hope that as you listen to the word in your own life and read it, you don't miss the beauty of the Lord Jesus Christ. Even in texts that you've read hundreds, if not thousands of times in the scripture. Don't let the busyness of life, even today as you hear the word of God, um, crowd it out. Don't let an academic approach to the scriptures rob you of the childlike faith of coming to them again, like those children watching Joshua Bell. Like Jesus says to us, come to him like a child. And I think today, I'm really excited to share with you the the word of God from this passage because, man, there's a lot in it. And I think we're going to see from Micah 7, that verses 18 through 20, that the last thing, kind of the continuation of what God wants in our lives is worship, is worship. That's what this passage is about, is worship. When we, when we read it now and when we dive into it, I just want that to be the posture of our hearts before the Lord. So some summary notes about this. I'm going to read it again. This is a little different than your Bibles, and I'll explain that in a second. But I just want to note that this text has a lot of kind of connections at a high level to worship. I'm going to give you a few before we dive in. Chapter 7 begins, if you remember, with Micah saying, there's no fruit. In fact, he looks at the judgment that's coming and says, this is going to be terrible. What, what can I do? But Micah 7 ends with unprecedented joy. And as if Micah can do nothing except bow down and worship the Lord for what he sees. See, actually, nothing has changed in his circumstances. It's a very short chapter, actually. Except he sees the promises of God more clearly. He knows what God wants of him, and so he can then worship the Lord. Secondly, I want to read to you Exodus chapter 34, verses 6 through 9. And as I'm doing that, whether in your own text or what's up here, I want you to think about the connections and particularly look at Moses' response to what the Lord says here. So I'm going to read it from the ESV. I want you to either look at Micah 7, 18 through 20 in your Bible or look up here, starting in verse 6 of Exodus 34. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generations. Verse 8, And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. And he said, if I now have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us. For it is a stiff-necked people and pardon our iniquity and sin and take us as your inheritance. You notice those connections here? So in God's character, I just think that's amazing. And the same response Moses has to what Micah has here of God's character and his ways, all that we've heard in the book of Micah so far. 
Another interesting connection here is that Orthodox Jews to this day read this passage after the book of Jonah. They read these three verses, 18, 19, and 20, directly after the book of Jonah on what day? The Day of Atonement. The Day of Atonement, this is read by Orthodox Jews. I find that very interesting and informative for what we're going to talk about today. And I noticed some similarities as well, and maybe you have too as you've read it, between Jonah and this passage. I just want to note a few of them uh, before we move on. Assyria in Jonah's day is also the primary bad guy, just like it is in Micah's day. Prophets, priests, and kings at that time were just as wicked. Jeroboam II. And actually, Jonah himself is not in a very good place with the Lord. He's angry that God would be merciful and compassionate to anyone that he thinks doesn't deserve it. Very interesting connection there. And I'll, I'll note here, a little more on this, but the actual text here in a couple of words, throw, we're going to see throw a lot. You know, in the book of Jonah, there's some throwing being done of Jonah himself. <laughs> there's love, hesed is a key theme, compassion, and the sea. Okay, so now we've seen, I think, some connections and why Orthodox Jews might read it in connection to this. All right, those are some high-level summaries. One more for you. This text, I think, is the gospel according to Micah. You know, we think about the gospel according to John, etc. In Micah's day, this is essentially, Micah 7, 18 through 20, the gospel according to Micah. What do we need to believe in his day, people would say, hey, what do we need to believe? Well, this is what Micah says the gospel is. How do we know the Lord? This is it. That's a good way to think about this passage, the gospel according to Micah. And in Micah's day, those people didn't think the same way we did looking back at the cross. They were looking forward to the cross. They're not looking back at what happened. They were looking forward to it. And so when we see that here, this is a big puzzle piece to what the promise was added by Micah. I think about it this way with my kids, right? <laughs> Moses, I've talked about him a lot. I love him to, dearly. One of his favorite things to do that will actually keep him quiet, probably the only thing that keeps him quiet is big puzzles. And, you know, we all know that starting a puzzle, you do what? The corners, right? You do the corner and then you do the edge and then you fill in the middle with colors. Moses does it the exact opposite way. He starts in the middle, and especially so if it's an animal that he loves that has some colors, like a tiger. And he, he even takes the corner pieces out of the puzzle and says, Daddy, no, you need to start with a tiger. Okay. <laughs> Regardless of what way is right, he gets it done and does an amazing job. I think that's kind of what's going on here with Micah. He's adding a giant, important piece of the puzzle. We've already touched on that, to what God is going to do in the future. All right, the gospel according to Micah. We're going to dig in now. Just remember that this is supposed to produce worship in them, in us, and in God's people of all times. So let's dig in. And I want to read it one more time from what I have up here. This is a transliteration. In other words, it's almost taking the direct language and putting it right up there without much smoothing over. I think that you're going to see why that's important for this message. Okay, starting in verse 18. Who is a God like you, who carries guilt, who passes over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? He will not hold on to his anger because he delights in love. He will relent and he will have compassion on us. 
He will subdue our guilt and throw all our sin into the depths of the sea. He will give truth to Jacob. He will give love to Abraham, the one whom you yourself swore to our fathers from long ago. I have found, I think at least here in this text, 11 reasons why God is worthy of worship. And I think there are more. But I'm going to point out those 11 here. And the first one is God is worthy of worship because he's incomparable. No one is like the Lord. Remember we talked about he's got different methods. He's a different kind of person, a different kind of king. Who is a God like you? And remember Micah's name? This is basically Micah saying, Micah, who is like you? Micah's like, hey, Micah, no one's like you. No one is like you. A statement of worship. What else can Micah do but bow down? God is incomparable. Think about all the ways he's incomparable in the book of Micah that we've covered. That's how Micah responds. That's the first thing in this text. God is incomparable and thus worthy of worship. Secondly, he's worthy of worship because he carries our guilt. He carries our guilt. He bends down, picks us up, and all the guilt and sin and shame that should fall on our shoulders and puts it on his. It's not just the physical punishment, though that's in view. The punishment that was supposed to be for us fell on him. He carried that. He also carries all of the mental anguish that comes along with being separated from God forever. He carried their guilt. He carries our guilt. It's interesting. This is a connection to Genesis chapter 4, verse 13. Cain. See, Cain had to carry his own guilt. The exact same words are there because he murdered his brother. God says, you're going to carry the blood guilt. You're going to carry your guilt. You know what? God promises better for us. He says, I will carry your guilt. We trust in him and he carries our guilt. This is the exact same word used in Leviticus, this connection between carrying and guilt of all the sin that had to be poured on the person who was coming. Their guilt had to be atoned for. And and we see here that Micah is saying, hey, that king is going to carry your guilt. That's the second thing in the text that I see that makes God worthy of worship, specifically Jesus Christ worthy of worship. And it gets even better. Third, God is worthy of worship because he passes over transgressions. Now, transgression is really rebellion. Rebellion against God's rules. And another word that's used to translate it is, um, in here, it's not only rebellion, but it's allegiances. We, we, it's an abandonment of allegiances, right? God says, hey, you're supposed to follow me. What do the people do? Rebel and follow their own desires, right? They commit treason. They commit treason. And so God says, Exodus 12, Exodus 12, the Passover, I will pass over your rebellion. For anyone who has the blood of the lamb on the doorpost, for any of us who are trusting in the lamb of God, he passes over our transgressions. That's a beautiful thing. They were rebellious, treasonous. Think about all the ways that Mike has pointed out that the leaders and the people had committed rebellion, even to the point, I must say, of sacrificing their own children. Even Hezekiah's son did that. And he says, you know what? I'm going to forgive that. I'm going to pass over that for you who trust me. And you know what Manasseh did? (laughs) Actually, amazingly, he did. They were rebellious. So God is worthy of worship, thirdly, because he passes over transgressions. Fourth, God is worthy of worship because there are some who still believe. Now, this is cool. If you were at the end, it says his 
precious possession, his people. He says he passes over these things. He forgives sin for his people. And there's a people. You know, I tem- I'm tempted often in my life, as I'm sure you are, to get discouraged when I look out at the world. And even in my own heart, man, am I ever going to obey you, Lord? Am I ever going to really love you? My desires ever going to match up? You know what he says? Yes, I have a people. He's going to have a people just like in Elijah's day, right? Elijah, 1 Kings 18. He defeats the prophets of Baal and then he runs into the wilderness sad because the people didn't believe. And God meets him and says, I have my people. Remember what we said, Satan will not prevail against God's people. The church will stand. We will prevail. And so God always has his people. And that's us. That's us. If you're in believing in Jesus Christ's work for your salvation, that's you and me and the church around the world. And that is why God is worthy of worship, because he still has a people. Despite the dark days that Micah was speaking to, there was a people, and God was their God. Fifth, God is worthy of worship because he doesn't hold on to his anger. Now, I love this phrase because I've been in that spot of holding on to my anger. Um, some of you know, most of you probably do by this point, that I worked at Arby's for a while, uh, seven years. <laughs> my parents know it well. Uh, and started at 15 and ended when I was about 22. And in one of my uh, restaurants there, I worked in about four of them, there was a boss that I had that I didn't get along with. And a lot of that was my fault. I, I was very angry with this person because I was not walking with the Lord, probably not even a believer at that time. And instances that happened at work just kind of built up in me, and I held on to my anger. And it kind of culminated one day when I actually walked out a little bit early when our shake machine at the restaurant broke. Now, those things broke, break all the time, and it was during rush hour, and so it's already stressful. If you've worked in fast food or any kind of like busy, busy place, you're like in a panic when something goes wrong and the drive through is backed up to the street, right? So my boss asked me, hey, can you go and like fix the shake machine? So we have to pull it out of the wall. I'm pulling, I'm pulling, I couldn't get it. And she comes over and pulls it out herself and looks at me and she says, you know, it just takes a man to do that work. I was like, oh. I was like, oh, ooh. And you know what, that, I was sadly enraged. But you know what? When I came to know the Lord, he restored that relationship. All of that anger that was pent up inside my heart was released. And amazingly, that lady actually paid for some of my school supplies to go to Emmaus. Man, that is a, I, I, it's just amazing. That wasn't me, that was God. And look at God here. The same thing. He doesn't hold up his anger forever. His anger was released on Jesus Christ, his wrath on the cross, so that what? So that we can have peace and a restored relationship. Isn't that amazing? That makes him worthy of worship. He doesn't hold on to his anger. And in fact, he delights to do the opposite. And that's the next one. He delights to love. This is Hesed. This all-important word in the Old Testament that basically means he delights to keep his promises. It's used of Ruth and Boaz, where Boaz shows Hesed or loving kindness or love, or he keeps the promises to this helpless foreign immigrant to Israel. But more so, it's used of God and us. A condescending love that when we're helpless and in need of him, he reaches down and loves us with no strings attached. It's faithful covenant love, a promise-keeping God. 
That's who we have, and that's why he's worthy of worship. And I just want to know in this text, that's juxtaposition for this reason. God does not grudgingly love. He doesn't grudgingly do what he did on the cross. For the joy set before him, Jesus did it. What we were talking about this morning. He set his face because he knew it was joyful. That's the kind of God we have. He doesn't enjoy punishment, though it's necessary and it fell on Jesus. He loves to love us. He delights in this kind of love. It's the kind of love that he showed to Joseph, despite all the hardship that he went through in restoring him to a great position. It's the kind of love that he showed to Abraham. We're going to get there in just a second. It's the kind of love, actually, in the book of Jonah that he shows to who? The Assyrians, when they repent. And, and to Jonah. You see, that's the problem. Jonah didn't want them to be saved. He wanted them to go straight to hell, basically. He went through the city and preached destruction, and yet God was gracious to him and gracious to the Assyrians, the same people who would, in a few short years, maybe 30 by some count, come and destroy God's people. That's the kind of love that God has. He loves to love. He delights in love. Seventh, God is worthy of worship because he will turn So this one is left out of most translations, sadly, but it's straight from Jonah. I'm going to talk about it here in a second. He will turn and have compassion. See, it's hard because God doesn't change. It's true. He doesn't change his mind like humans do, and yet he set up the world in such a way that if we repent of sin and we trust in Christ, wrath does not fall on us. And the same thing happened with the Assyrians, and that's what he is promising through us to us here through Micah, God will turn. He will relent from the destruction. That's a promise of Micah in this text. And he will what? Have compassion. Like a mother feels for her children. That kind of compassion. Starting in the stomach. A deep love, an outpouring of compassion on his people. That makes him worthy of worship. Eighth, God is worthy of worship because he subdues guilt and then throws it into the sea. And man, this is full of imagery from the book of Jonah. I want to just give a little illustration here. Some of you probably have heard it before, but the Mariana Trench and the Challenger Deep. It's so deep, no human has actually even been there to the bottom of it yet. 36,070 feet down in the ocean. It's the point most distance from the surface of the water all the way down in the depths of the ocean. It's helpful to know, actually, for me, that if you were to go down there without any gear on, which actually no human ever has, it's about 100 elephants sitting on your head. That's what it would feel like down there, down at the depths. It feels like death. And maybe that's the point there. I think it is. See, it would take, it's only seven miles down there to the bottom of that trench, but it's a place where nothing has ever gone No one can ever see or has yet seen, and it's a place where everything is forgotten. And see, that's what happened to Jonah. See, God threw a storm, his sin, at him. And then, actually, the sailors took Jonah and threw him in the ocean (laughs) for his own sin. Following there? The bearer of sin went down into the depths. You know what? Jesus picks up on that in Matthew chapter 12, and he says, you'll get the sign of Jonah You know what? The bearer of sin, Jesus himself, will go down into the depths of death and raise again on the third day. 
That's what Micah is pointing us to. This idea that this coming king would do the same thing as what happened to Jonah, but in a better way. In a better way. And we know that looking back, Micah's people knew it, looking forward, that after three days, this king would rise again. Amazing. All right, now, ninth. I think it gets even better in this text. If you can believe it or not, if we look at this here, it's interesting. It says, he will give truth to Jacob. What does that mean? Truth is kind of an interesting thing, right? Well, I was thinking this week, I was like, I almost missed it. Like that illustration, right? I almost missed it. Where is truth connected to Jacob? Uh, there are three times it could be, Genesis 28, Genesis 32, and Genesis 35. But it's actually Genesis 32. It's not the latter, but God promises in Genesis 32, 24, something crazy here. Jacob asks him, now this is interesting, right? It says, he will, what, give truth. Jacob asked God for truth. He asked God for truth, and who shows up? In Genesis 32, a man shows up, but it's clear it's not just a man, it's God. And he wrestles Jacob, and he wins. <laughs> he won't tell him his name. <laughs> but it's clear in that passage that it is God himself. It is a God-man. Wow. <laughs> Mike is pointing us to the appearance of a God-man to give truth to Jacob. Micah 5.2, the divine man shows up to help. That's amazing. <laughs> I find that crazy. And you know what Jacob says in response to all that is happening? He says, I have seen God face to face. I have seen God face to face. That's what Micah is saying to us in this text. Hey, God is worthy of worship because you know what? You're going to see him face to face. He is the one who's coming. God himself, the son, the second person of the Trinity is going to come and show up. And you know, there it's the angel of the Lord. It's the angel of the Lord. The angel of the Lord shows up to help and to give truth. Now, 10th then. Oh, I, I just want to say this. John 14, 6. This is very clear in the New Testament. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Very clear. All right, 10th. And if you think that's crazy, this one to me is even crazier. <laughs> he says he's going to give love to Abraham. Now, you're probably guessing where this is going to go. Genesis chapter 22. In Genesis 22, the angel of the Lord appears as Abraham is taking up Isaac to sacrifice his only son twice. Not once, twice in that passage. At first, when the knife is about to come down, the angel of the Lord says, stop. I'm going to provide for you a sacrifice. And later on, he says, I am going to give you offspring. Singular. Galatians 3, 16, Genesis 3, 15, a seed, a single man who will come and take care of sin and crush Satan. This passage is absolutely crazy because Jesus shows up pre-incarnate, Jesus, the son of God, and tells Abraham, hey, stop, I'm going to provide through myself. Crazy. He's saying it's like, a it's like a back to the future thing. He shows up in the past pointing to the future. He knows it all. He says, I'm going to be the one, My, me, in a body. I'm going to provide for you. I'm going to be the atoning sacrifice. That is amazing. And that is what Micah wants you and I to see in this passage. 
that makes God worthy of worship, that the Son will be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Amazing. That seed, and that's why I translated this here, the 11th thing in this passage is that after truth and love, a lot of Bible passages translate it which. I think it's very clear given that, given the fact that all the passages that he's pointing to are pre-incarnate Christ. All of them are the seed, singular, the one whom you swore to our fathers. And in that Genesis 22 passage, Jesus swears. He makes an oath. He makes an oath. It's just very clear that this passage is pointing once again to the angel of the Lord and to the second person of the Trinity, whom we know, his name. Jacob didn't, but we do. Jesus Christ. And that makes him worthy of worship. I hope we don't miss that. At the end of Micah, it's the culmination of the book. It says, hey, I'm worthy of worship because of all these things. Worship me. That's amazing to me. So, I think then we can conclude pretty safely from this text that the gospel, the gospel according to Micah, the gospel according to Jesus Christ, who is the Savior, produces in our hearts worship. That's what God is after. That's what he wants in our lives. He wants worship. Don't skip over too easily the wonder of the gospel here in Micah and the wonder of the gospel as revealed by God in the scriptures. All these people, all these circumstances, the judgment that will be taken on him should lead us to worship. And I think there's a hermeneutical lesson here, if you will. How do we read the Bible in this? This, it was a good one for me to learn again. When there are key questions that are answered in the text, and when they connect key words with key people, it's good for us to go back and be like, hey, what does that mean? What, what is he referring to here? Because sadly, I didn't see as much of Jesus in the Old Testament as I should. And in the scriptures, I don't see as much of him as I wish I did. Don't miss it. It's kind of a good lesson for us as we go to the Bible. So we've seen the gospel here, and we've seen that God wants worship. I'll say this, though, that God doesn't need worship. He doesn't need us to worship, but it's the best thing for us. And it's what he drives at. I want to read a quote here from John Piper, it says, I want us, and I I feel this in my soul as well, of myself. I want to have this conviction that worship should never be pursued as a means to achieving something other than worship. Worship is never a step on our way up to any other experience. It is not a door through which we pass to get anywhere. It is the end point, the goal We do not recruit people to recruit other people. We recruit people for God. The content, the substance, the life, the goal, the end is God and the joyful experience of ascribing glory to him forever. Evangelism isn't an end in itself. Worship is. And reading the scriptures is as well. It points to Christ so that we might worship him. And what he means, and what I'm trying to convey here, is that knowing Bible facts really well is not what God is necessarily after. Find good financial stewardship, good parenting, healthy marriages, bold evangelism, good reputations are not the goal of what God has done for us. It is worship of Jesus Christ. So if those things take over our hearts, he is removed. It should be the other way. He wants the worship. He wants us to come to him. And I love what Isaiah 29 has to say about this. When we find ourselves in that place in rebellion, just like Micah's people did, 
This is what God wants us to think about. Isaiah 29, 13 and 14. And the Lord said, Because this people draw near with their mouth and honor me with their lips, while their hearts are far from me, and their fear of me is a commandment taught by men. Judgment, right? No. Therefore, behold, I will again do wonderful things with this people. (laughs) With wonder upon wonder, and the wisdom of their wise men shall perish, and the discernment of their discerning men shall be hidden. How does God fight that lack of worship? Wonders. Jesus Christ. Putting him up, as Reese said in the worship service, as the desire of our hearts. Establishing that relationship through the gospel's work in our lives daily. That's what he wants. That's what he's driving at here in this passage. I just got to say, if, if you or I at any time in our lives, whether now or later, are not experiencing the Lord Jesus Christ in worshipful ways, what do we got to do? Return to the gospel. See Christ crucified in your life again for your sin, taking the penalty of that upon himself. That will stir up worship in your hearts. Has God done wonderful things in your life? Yes. I know that answer. I know many of you well. God has done wonderful things in your life, and he will do them again. They're all based upon this principle that he wants worship from you. So I guess the challenge here before we move into that review is that men and women, let's meditate on the scriptures, specifically on the uniqueness of what God has done in the gospel in your life this week. And come ready to present that to the Lord as worship next Sunday. Not just next Sunday. Maybe that'll be a theme throughout your life these next few months or however long God does. But come with that. And you can come, whether you participate vocally or not, you can come with that offering, can't you? This week, think about how God, through the gospel, has changed your life. And come with that. Just say, hey, Lord, I present this to you at worship next week. Because that's what that's about. Whether you participate vocally or not, that's what God wants from us is that worship. Maybe you can write it down if, if you participate silently and thank the Lord. We have an awesome church. Steve talked about that, that does that according to the scriptures. You can give it to someone who can produce it or uh, talk about it vocally and share it with the body. I know some of the most encouraging, worshipful times here are when I hear someone's testimony for the first time. I heard a lady's testimony a couple weeks ago that just brought me to tears. I don't cry very much, but I was in tears listening to her testimony. That's what, that's what God wants. That's what God wants from us here at the Lord's Supper, is to focus on the uniqueness of Christ and to worship him every Sunday. And I got a challenge here. For the men who rarely participate, I think it would be a great blessing for us to hear from you. What has God done in your life? If you mess up up here, it's totally fine. <laughs> I've done it many times, even from up here. What has God done in your life? How has he saved you? And come up here and share it with us. Not just next week, regularly be ready to testify to the gospel's work in your life so that we can worship together to what he's done. He's worthy of it, and he wants that. He wants worship. And the gospel produces it in our hearts and overflows here and everywhere. I think that's what Micah 7, 18 is about. Now, I want to transition to a couple final things here in the last five to ten minutes. If someone who hasn't read Micah came to you this week and said, hey, what is Micah about? What would you say? 
I'm not asking now. High schoolers would be telling me all these answers right now. I'm just saying, think about it. Think about it. That's kind of the goal of this series, right? Any, anytime we get into the Word of God, it's really to know it well. What would you say to that? What would you say Micah is about? Here are some things that I've tried to, for better or worse, communicate that Micah is about. Micah is about how God responds to unjust Israelite leaders. And you see these divisions here. He responds first to that with consequences and judgment for replacing him, right? You see that? They replace God with their own desires, counterfeit comforts. And so he said, I'm going to judge you. Then it's about the proof of that judgment for the leaders, 3-1. And the promise starts there, the end of 3 into 4 and 5. Chapters 6 and 7, he tells us what he wants. He told the Israelite leaders what he wanted, to believe the promise and to worship him and no one else. That, to me, is what the book of Micah is about in summary. Three divisions, talking about those things specifically. I, I left this to the end, because I was hoping you all were reading it, and you, many of you have told me you have, that's awesome. But I didn't want to spoil it, in a sense, but I think these are probably the key verses that help us think through, exegetically, the book of Micah. Talking about the leadership and their sins, how God is going to deal with that, the kingship, the divine human king that's coming in 5-2, God's saying, hey, I want you to wait and I want you to worship. The same as Micah's name there. So those will be available online. I see a lot of you have a phone out. That's great. <laughs> if you don't have a phone, you don't have a picture, they're available online. You can get it uh, on our website. Those are the key verses, I think, in the book of Micah. I have another question for you. I think it's good for us to think through when we're done with a book series. If someone who hasn't read Micah asked you this, how is Micah unique? In other words, why is it in the Bible? What was God trying to communicate to you and I that's kind of special about Micah versus another book? And I hope, I think, we've touched on that specifically the last couple of weeks, but throughout. Here are a couple things that help us think through the uniqueness of Micah. Very briefly here, he ministers... At the same time as Isaiah, so he's a mini Isaiah, if you will, maybe a little more of a blunt Isaiah, kind of, not as poetic, pretty blunt. And he ministered primarily, most likely during Isaiah's day, but three kings, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. And he ministered during a time in which a lot of God's people were going to be murdered and taken into exile during the time of the Assyrian kings. Okay? Second, I think this is a theme Justice. I think Micah talks about bad leadership versus the good leader, Jesus, but also about justice. And this is available online as well, and I put it up one time for a long time. I'm going to actually work today to help do something that several people have asked me personally to do, and I've had to wrestle through it because I wasn't quite there yet myself in thinking through it, but I'm, I have a, I'm getting better, I think, at this specifically. I want to give a, a definition of justice, at least towards a definition, better than what our culture offers biblically. And here it is. A guy named William Lane Craig, this first part is his quote. He said, God's moral perfection, his righteousness, is comprised of two equal, co-equal elements, namely perfect justice and love. And you see that at the end of Micah, actually. You see that justice that fell on Christ and his love for his people. So justice, speaking of justice then... It relates to righteousness. And justice is any action that brings peace 
I have a couple notes here I won't touch on right now, but by giving to God what he deserves and to people what they deserve. And so it can be God to human, human to human, right? There's a vertical nature of justice and a horizontal nature of justice. I think a a good illustration to help us think through this, uh, you've heard about bullying at school, right? It's all over the news. I actually experienced quite a bit of that in my high school as well. It was a difficult time for me. I think God was preparing me for later, but when a kid is bullied, you don't only punish the perpetrators. If you do nothing to help the person who has been bullied, you are not doing justice. You can see that in the way God speaks about it in the scriptures. He says, I want you to help the oppressed, not just punish the oppressor. I want you to help the oppressed. And isn't this what the cross does for us? <laughs> we were oppressed by sin. But God had to have a payment. And Jesus paid it, and he helped us in the process. He gave to God what God deserved, and to man himself on the cross, the God-man, what they deserved. And by doing that, he blessed us all. That's justice. At least right now, that's where I'm going in my own mind with justice, towards a definition. It's hard. It's a hard thing to do to find justice, if you haven't noticed yet. There's a lot of stuff out there. Podcasts, a lot of people out there. Um, So this is my shot at it here. But I think that's a clear theme of Micah, this justice theme and how it's accomplished for God as well. All right. So how does God respond to unjust Israelite leaders? Well, he gives us the hope of the coming king. And these are things that we've talked about every, the beginning of every message. But he says, you know what? That coming king is going to be God. He points out the angel of the Lord coming. Says that how does how does Micah exalt that Messiah? He says, He's not only a man who's gonna reign on the throne of David, he's God himself. He's a God man. What kind of sin and what kind of injustice is Micah calling out? You can go back and look through it, but basically that entire book is about the leaders. I, I'm I'm contending that it's about religious leaders specifically leading people away from God by their actions. So what they're producing, actually, get it here at the end of Micah 7. We're supposed to have worship. And actually, a lot of the promises say, hey, the nations are going to come worship. What are those people doing? This ties into leadership. They're leading people away from God's goal. The religious leaders are stealing people's coats instead of bringing them worship, right? Remember, he says you're drunken thieves. No one wants to come worship God at the temple. And so I think that's where he's driving. And that connects those two themes there in the middle. And finally... How is God going to solve Micah's and the Israelites' problem and ours? Well, if you haven't heard that in my preaching, I've failed. <laughs> so it's in and through the coming king and his atoning sacrifice for our sins. And Micah just is very clear about that. And at the end, he drives it home. He's saying, you know what? You can't do it. I just got to say for all of us, we can't do it. Jesus had to do it for us. And that's Micah. He's saying, you know what? God's going to solve the Israelite problem. He's going to solve your problem and my problem and every person's problem for all time through the cross. And so that's the gospel according to Micah. We know his name. They didn't, but it's the same king. So let's go this week and worship the Lord together. Let me pray and close this out. Heavenly Father, thank you for this wonderful book. Thank you for opening my eyes and just pray that all of our eyes would be open to see the wonder of Jesus Christ. Not only in the book of Micah, but throughout the scriptures. And that because we can 
say, yes, I trust you, Lord Jesus, our hearts just overflow in worship as an end in itself, as something we come here and rejoice to do like we did this morning. We just praise your name for that, and we love you, Lord Jesus, and it's in your name we pray. Amen.